morning. If you have your Bibles with you, open to Proverbs chapter 18. That's where we'll spend our time this morning. Proverbs chapter 18. Before I begin, I do want to say a few things this morning. One, I want to express my thankfulness to the church regarding the recent vote that would include a full-time salary for uh, my family. Um, For 22 years, the Lord has been graciously providing for my family in multiple ways, and I really do view all those as God's grace to our family. Um, But I can say with uh, a lot of joy in my heart and thankfulness to you that um, uh, I have one responsibility um, as far as work goes now, and that's to shepherd your souls. And I take that joy and privilege and responsibility uh, very seriously. So much so that um, the weight of that responsibility um, weighs very heavily on my heart. And um, I think in the last few weeks since that vote has taken place, um, God has certainly made clear to me uh, my weaknesses and my need of him and my need to appeal to him for help. Um, Probably simultaneously with the vote, the the weight of pastoring uh, increased tremendously, not because of the vote, but because of where we are in the life of this church. And um, my weakness is abundantly clear to me and perhaps to you as well. Um, and I say with you that I, I, I covet your prayers. I, I need your, your prayers, and I certainly need God's help to fulfill the role that he has called me to. I feel that this morning as I prepare to preach in Proverbs. Uh, Pastor Jordan, thank you so much for the first four sermons from this book, uh, a series uh, that we've entitled Wisdom for Life. Uh, I think Jordan's knocked four of them out of the park. And so I feel the pressure of that. Uh, I know I don't have to uh, preach like Jordan. I'm thankful for that. And, and uh, I'm certainly uh, looking forward to being in Proverbs 18 with you today. I feel the need for God's help. So I'm going to pray again briefly, and then we'll dive right into Proverbs 18. Father, I do pray that you would open our eyes, our spiritual eyes, so that we may see wonderful things in your law. And Father, we pray that your gospel would come to us this morning, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The aim this morning is simple. We want to see that true, true wisdom is rooted in the humility of Christ. We want to see from God's Word that true wisdom is rooted in the humility of Christ. I just want to read um, parts of Proverbs 18, that our verse, 18.12, is where we'll concentrate our time, but there's several other verses that I think give us a, a picture of what's being communicated in Proverbs 18. Beginning in verse 1, it says, He who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. A fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. When a wicked man comes, contempt also comes, and with dishonor comes scorn. The words of a man's mouth are deep waters. The fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. Verse 6, a fool's lips bring strife and his mouth calls for blows. A fool's mouth in his ruin is his ruin, and his lips are the snare of his soul. Verse 10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. A rich man's wealth is his strong city, and like a high wall is his own imagination. Then verse 12, the verse we'll spend time in this morning. Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty, but humility 
goes before honor. He who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. Verse 15, the mind of the prudent acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. Verse 17, the first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. Verse 19, a brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city, and contentions are like the bars of a citadel. And then 20 and 21, with the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach will be satisfied. He will be satisfied with the product of his lips. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Well, we know that we could pick any verse in Proverbs and it would be loaded with wisdom. Proverbs 18 seems especially loaded to me, and I'm thankful that I'm only given one verse to really try to expound this morning because as I read just snippets of that chapter, you can see the wealth of wisdom that is present there. The issue of Proverbs 18.12 is the heart of man. So this morning, our aim is to get to the heart of the matter. Let's jump right in and see what exactly Proverbs 18.12 is communicating. All throughout Scripture, God addresses the heart of man. This is not a new theme. Uh, it's the aim of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We find it all throughout the Old Testament and all throughout the New. God aiming at the heart of man. And by a man's heart, God will judge him. According to Proverbs 4.23, says this, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. God warns us to watch our heart carefully because all of life flows out of the heart. As our heart goes, so goes our life. Additionally, we learn from Scripture that the heart is problematic. Isaiah, excuse me, Isaiah, Jeremiah 17, 9, a verse that we probably know well, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? So according to Scripture, we're told that the very thing that determines how our life goes is itself deceitful. Do you catch that? This seems like a very difficult position to begin as a person. My life, will go, my life will go according to this deceitful heart that I was born with. There is hope. I'm obviously laying out the hard news, the bad news. There is hope, however, that the heart of man can be made right and function in a way that is beneficial for life, not just this life, practically speaking, but the life to come, eternal life. And in addition to the heart... In the importance of the heart, there is the proper use of our mind, and those two work in tandem together all the time. Our heart and our mind work in tandem together. Our mind can inform our heart of truth. Our minds are able to obtain knowledge and wisdom that instruct the heart. But with that becomes a new danger. A new danger arises against our mind. Many persons have obtained massive amounts of knowledge. Often I'll watch the game show Jeopardy. I say often, from time to time I'll watch the game show Jeopardy. And inevitably I'm good for maybe one or two right answers as the show carries on. But the people on the show uh, consistently know every answer, or at least one of the three. So I know, just from observation of that show and uh, I know there's several among us here that are sharp minds. And there's a danger of obtaining massive amounts of knowledge and never being able to use it properly to inform their heart, to instruct their heart. Their minds are simply puffed up with knowledge and without ever being put to proper use. However, if one will couple knowledge with today's subject, today's aim, if one would couple knowledge with humility, they'll obtain wisdom for life. Knowledge that is not undergirded in humility will destroy its owner. 
Knowledge divorced from humility can only lead to pride. True humility and wisdom are inseparable. You can't have wisdom without humility. And if you're humble, you will have wisdom. They go together. The reality is it's impossible to speak of one without mentioning the other. And threaded through all godly wisdom is the attribute of humility. Knowledge absent of humility is deceitful. And that's where our heart is vulnerable. Again, the aim this morning is to point you down the path of humility so that you might gain wisdom for life. To obtain wisdom in humility, we must look at primarily the example that Jesus sets for us in the New Testament. We'll see that. But to get there, we want to contrast, really, this morning. This morning's sermon is a contrast between biblical pride and biblical humility. We want to define those biblically. And we want to give, this morning, I want to give examples of those. So we want to define pride, we want to define humility. We we want to give a biblical example of pride and a biblical example of humility. And then we want to see the results of those two. So really, definitions, examples, and results. That's where we're going this morning. Proverbs 18, 12 again says this. Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty, but humility goes before honor. Well, we want to define the word haughty or pride. Haughty is being arrogant or arrogantly, in your mind, arrogantly superior or disdainful. The way that we would define pride is a feeling of deep pleasure or satisfaction derived from one's high view of self. A feeling or deep pleasure or satisfaction derived from one's high view of self. So, pride is to have a high view of self. And humility would obviously be the opposite of that. A modest or low view of one's own importance. Well, the first thing that we find in the text, verse 12, is this. A warning. A warning against a prideful heart. The heart of man is haughty. Let's, let's really talk about pride. Let's really deal with this word pride. Pride is, listen to this, a lie. Pride is a lie. Pride is having an inflated view of self. Pride is excluding God while considering self. Pride is birth in ignorance. And the irony is, prideful men cannot see their own pride. They are blinded to it. That is why Scripture says the heart is deceitful. They so easily deceive themselves into who they really are. I want you to see how God's Word addresses pride. We could go a lot more places than where I'm about to go this morning, and I tried to stay in the Proverbs as much as I could to help define pride and humility, though we'll branch out to a few other texts. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction. It sounds a lot like our verse. And a haughty spirit before stumbling. Proverbs 11, verse 2 says, When pride comes, then comes dishonor. But with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 29-23 says this, A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. And then James 4-6, But God gives a greater grace. Therefore it, is, therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Pride is asinine. It says to the Creator, the the Sustainer, the, the Giver of grace, I don't need you. Pride says to God Almighty, I have doubt that anybody would ever look to the heavens, point their, vo- point their finger and say with their voice, God, I don't need you. I don't think any of us would do that. But I do think that too often our actions 
do that very thing. Pride opposes the God of the universe. Listen to this. Pride is a cancer. Though the outward appearance may not initially show the evidence that pride is actually present inwardly, it is destroying a man from within. Hey kids, that if you're here this morning and you've ever been to a birthday party where there was a pinata, raise your hand. You can, uh, adult kids too, I guess, right? We, we've been to a party with pinatas, right? Imagine, Lily, imagine that, uh, Lizzie, imagine that you're at a birthday party with a pinata and it's your turn to swing the bat, right? And you take a really hard swing and you hit the pinata and boom, it busts open. And when it busts open, nothing comes out of it. It's empty. Imagine the disappointment of all the children at the birthday party, especially the one that, that did the, the swing that busted open this pinata and then it's empty. We would all be disappointed. What, a, what an empty feeling we would have to go with the empty pinata. Listen, that's what pride is like. It may look good on the outside. You may think it looks good on the outside to people. But on the inside, there's emptiness. There's nothing but emptiness in the heart of a man who's full of pride. He's empty. Perhaps adults, we could give an illustration that would make more sense to us. Imagine spending your whole life laboring for your family to provide and setting aside money in your retirement fund. And you work for 40, 50, 60 years, depending on how long you work. And you get to that day of retirement, you've been saving up the whole time, and you, ever so often, periodically, you check in to see what that retirement fund looks like. And the day you retire, you contact the bank that is housing all your money to, only to find out that this retirement that you had worked your whole life for didn't really exist. There was nothing there. You'd been putting money in nothing. That's exactly what pride does for a man. He may think it's earning something for him. He may think it's gaining something. But at the end, pride earns nothing for you but emptiness. It's empty. So why would we, why would we be prideful? If it's a cancer, if it's a lie, if it's asinine, if it opposes God, why would we let pride creep into our life? I love what Charles Spurgeon said about pride. He said, pride is the firstborn son of hell. It's Satan's greatest tool. Listen to this. And it's the sin that we're most vulnerable to. Pride comes so easy. It comes so easy. And pride does not respect any man. It can find itself among anybody. The rich, the poor, the healthy, the unhealthy. You pick contrasting stories of lives for anybody. And the reality is, pride can be there. It doesn't respect anybody. It can find its way into anybody's life. And it's unfortunate that we live in a society that promotes self-sufficiency to the degree that it does. By all means, I want my children to be self-sufficient in some things. But the degree, excuse me, but to the degree that our society promotes self-sufficiency is a shame because self-sufficiency is exactly at the heart and root of pride. And what we do is we slowly isolate ourselves, thinking that I can do this all on my own. Back at the beginning of Proverbs chapter 18, it says, He who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. Who would do that? Who would go against all sound wisdom? When you have all this sound wisdom on a certain subject, and then you have one person that will just choose to go against that. What is that called? Well, the next verse says, A fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. Pride is at the root of this. Only pride could cause a man to go against all sound wisdom. Only pride 
could cause you to desire to just reveal your mind and never to hear from anyone else. It's pride. A proud person will not listen to proven wise counsel, but only wants to reveal his mind to other people. Pride is to say, listen to me, pride can say the right thing, but will be doing the opposite. Pride is a wolf in sheep's clothing. Pride is the easiest sin to slip into and the vilest to be judged by God. Pride is like having a madman live in your heart. Perhaps a biblical example of what we mean when we talk about pride would serve us well in our consideration of pride. In the narrative of Daniel chapter 4 concerning King Nebuchadnezzar, Maybe you'll remember the story. Daniel interprets the king's dream. And in his interpretation, he warns against the very thing that God has put before us today in today's text. Pride. And after Daniel courageously interprets the king's dream, stating that the dream was a warning from God concerning Nebuchadnezzar's pride, the king responds with the following. This is Nebuchadnezzar's response in Daniel chapter 4, verse 30. It says, The king reflected upon Daniel's interpretation of his dream and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built up as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? That was Nebuchadnezzar's response. He continues, while the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. And you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beast of the field. And you will be given grass to eat like cattle. And seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Immediately, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. Instantaneously. And he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Now on the outside, as we read those few verses in Daniel concerning Nebuchadnezzar, it's easy to see the foolish actions that Nebuchadnezzar's guilty of. Like, who in their right mind, when Daniel interprets this man who we know survives a lion's den, right? Who, who would dare reject this? Who would reject this wise man's words? But when you're eaten up with pride yourself, it's undetectable. A proud man can't see his pride. Therefore, he lives in it. And as ludicrous as it sounds, a prideful man not only can't see his pride, but they are usually a bit perplexed why everyone else doesn't see their own greatness the same way they do. Perhaps you think I'm talking about somebody this morning besides yourself. But the reality is, we're all a bunch of King Nebuchadnezzars. You have standing on stage preaching to you this morning a King Nebuchadnezzar, a man whose pride all too often creeps into his life and does the insane, opposes God, cares more about himself than others, doesn't have Christ's interests in mind, thinks that his wisdom is greater than the proven wisdom of the multitude. Furthermore, we as King Nebuchadnezzar's in the deceit of our heart, not only desire for others to see our imagined greatness, but listen to this, we demand it from them. How many of you husbands, dads, Demand at home what God has graciously given you. You demand that 
the family acknowledge your greatness or your place. This is exactly what happens in King Nebuchadnezzar's case. Initially, when he becomes king, others buy into his high view of self. He's great. They love him. And it only seems natural to him that they would, as, even as time passes, continue to worship him. But the reality is, pride exposes itself. It can't be hidden. It just keeps bubbling to the surface. And you can wax it with nice words, but if pride is rooted in your heart, it will come to the surface. It will be made evident. You will be exposed. You will be found out. And the king's actions expose him. And his response is, He forces, he demands that the whole nation bow to him and see him as he imagines himself to be. But ultimately, his God-given sovereignty is stripped from him. The moment that he says, my greatness, my power, my majesty, God has had enough. The pride is too great. And the God who had given him his sovereignty rips it away. He rips it away. He strips it from him. Not because God so hated Nebuchadnezzar and his pride, but because God knew that if he didn't rip that pride out of Nebuchadnezzar's heart, he would have no chance. He would have no chance. And immediately, Nebuchadnezzar becomes aware of his feebleness, of his mere manhood. He's exposed. And what he was blind to, the reality that God had set up his kingdom, which he possessed, he thought it was his power, his might, his majesty, was cut off. And his pride is exposed. And what with all this pride, what will it earn for you as an individual? If, like Nebuchadnezzar, we're, run, we're allowed to run rampant in our pride. What's the result of that? What will we earn for ourselves? For a while, it looked like he was just going to have this majestic kingdom where he was God and he could do whatever he wanted to do. But when he came face to face with the real God, what did it earn for him? What does our pride earn for us? Well, according to the text, Proverbs eighteen twelve, the heart of a man is haughty, But something comes before that. Excuse me, something follows that. That haughtiness, that pride precedes something. What does the text say? Destruction. It earns for you destruction. Pride leads to the destruction of man. Pride brings about dishonor. Pride brings low a man who believes he deserves to be exalted. Pride will utterly destroy your life and hinder you from the one to come. Pride is the enemy of heaven. Pride robbed our earthly parents, Adam and Eve, of their unhindered communion with God, the fellowship that they enjoyed with Him, the rest that they had, and gave them toil and sorrow. Pride will rob you of your joy. Pride will rob you of the fruit of your labor. It will rob you of you and your family. And most importantly, pride will rob you of your soul. It'll rob you of all those things. Pride does not care about you. It'll run roughshod over your life. Hear me, sinners. Destruction is coming for you. Destruction is coming for you. God's wrath in the fullest sense awaits you if you cannot submit yourself to Christ and His way. How much damage will you let pride do in your life before you repent of it? When will you reckon with the pride that exists in your heart? God will oppose the proud, but He desires to extend grace to us. He desires for us to be an an honorable and honored people. It is possible, despite pride, and the root of it in your heart, and the damage that it's causing, and the destruction that awaits. Listen to this. 
It's possible, rather than to receive all that dishonor that comes with pride that we've talked about in the first half of this sermon, it's possible to receive honor from God rather than dishonor. Even if everything that we said about King Nebuchadnezzar and ourselves this morning is true. See, there's two halves to Proverbs 18.12. Not only do we want to see the, the pride that is in the heart of man and the destruction that follows, but I want you to see the alternative. He says, but humility goes before honor. We should certainly plead that God would put us in the second half of that verse. I don't want to be in the first half. I don't want you to be in the first half. I want to be found in the second half. I want you to be found in the second half of that verse. I want what's true of us to follow those, that three-letter word, but humility goes before honor. Humility is to think rightly about oneself. Rather than having this high view of self, listen to me, humility is not having this low view of self. It's having a right view of self. And in order to think rightly about yourself, we have to think rightly about God. We have to know the God of the Bible. If we have a wrong or low view of God, then we'll naturally have a wrong and an exalted view of self. But if we have a right view of God, a high view of God, then we will naturally have the right view of self. Yes, it would make us lower than perhaps in our pride we think we are. Realize that everything that we are and have is God-given. And therefore, we must live like God has given us what we have. Using all that we are and have, not to seek honor for ourselves, but to honor the one who has freely given us all things. That's what humility is, living life unto God, not for ourselves. When we see God for who He is, high and exalted, then we're exposed for who we are, that we're feeble, that we're in need of Him, that we're dependent, that we are not sinless, but sinful, and in need of someone to reconcile us to God. We should feel ourselves to be lost and ruined and undone and realize that something very important has to happen. For us to understand humility, we have to know who God is and know who we are in light of that and see our need for His salvation. We have to realize that we're undone and realize something very important has to happen. Listen to this. We must realize that we have to die to self. We have to die to self. Listen to the way George Mueller says it. There was a day when I died. Utterly died. Died to George Mueller. His opinions, preferences, taste, and will. Died to the world, its approval or censure. Died to the approval or blame even of my brethren and friends. And since then, I have studied to show myself approved only to God. John 3.30 says it like this, He must increase, but I must decrease. Humility is that God be all and that we be nothing. We have no power of ourselves, but to be entirely dependent upon God. Humility sounds like the hymn writer, Augustus Toplady, suggests in Rock of Ages, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Recognizing our need for God is one thing, but to deny self and actually depend on, on Him is an entirely different matter. Luke 9.23, another familiar verse. And Jesus was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. Meaning, I must deny myself. You must deny yourself. Take up your cross daily and follow him. 
True humility requires, listen to this, a cross. You cannot be humble without a cross. Because you cannot have humility without a cross. Too many men would rather war against God than die. Again, it's insanity. We would rather war against God than die. We don't want to give up self. We spend massive amounts of time and energy trying to preserve self. One of the ways that we war against God is it's not blatant, outright opposition to God, or at least it doesn't appear to be. Inwardly, it certainly is. But we try to define the terms for God on how we'll come to Him. We try to tell God how we're going to live the Christian life. We try to tell God, I'll do this, this, and this for you, but I'm going to hold on to this. This, I'm going to do my way. I'm going to hold on to this one thing. That's pride. There's no humility there. There's no cross there. And we've set ourselves in opposition to God. We try to give God partial obedience, partial commitment, partial heart allegiance. But God won't accept it. He rejects that. Because there's no humility in it. And He opposes the proud. We try to do do God and preserve self at the same time. But the only way to God is the death of self. Humility is like that early morning alarm clock. Josiah knows about that. When the alarm clock goes off, self wants another hour of precious sleep. So what you want to do is you want to hit that button and sleep a little bit more rather than respond to the alarm. That's the way we are in life. When God tells us, you got to die to that, Brian. you got to die to that. You have to die to that. We want to hit the button one more time. Let me have another hour, God. Of self the way I like self. Self the way I want self. Again, God rejects that notion. Self will always war against humility at all costs. You must be putting to death the old man. Listen to me. You can't let the old man live and hope to live a humble life. It's just not going to happen. They don't go together. It's like oil and water. The best example, just like we had an example of pride in the Old Testament with King Nebuchadnezzar, we have an example of humility in the New Testament, and it's the incomparable King Christ. It says this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Listen to these words. Do nothing from selfishness. Nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. That is death to self. Doing nothing from selfishness is death to self. Considering others more important is death to self. And then we have Christ's example in the next four verses. He says, have this attitude, this attribute in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There is no humility like the humility of Christ. There are four verbs that I want us to consider this morning as we look at the command Paul gives the church in Philippi to strive for the attitude of Christ, which is an attitude of humility. We should mimic these four verbs. We should seek to be like Christ. The first is this. He did not regard. He had every reason to, but he did not regard. Is the way the the Philippians text reads. He did not regard what? Equality with God, a thing to be grasped. 
Who was Jesus? He was God. He was God. But he wasn't given regard to that. The second thing that I want you to see is he emptied himself. It's the opposite of pride. Pride puts on this show, but like the pinata, it's empty on the inside. Christ chose to empty himself. He willingly emptied himself. We should do the same. The third thing he did was he took on servanthood. Is that how you wake up every morning? How am I going to serve today? Who can I serve today? Or, better yet, maybe that's an easy way. What happens when you're tired and hungry after a long day and somebody needs servant? You didn't get up and plant it. It, it, it dropped on you like a ton of bricks. Then what are you going to do? Take on servanthood. That's what Christ did. You don't think that was a ton of bricks in the Garden of Gethsemane where he sweat teardrops of blood? Of course it was. But he had taken on servanthood. The fourth thing, he humbled himself. I want you to see the two ways he did it. By being obedient and by dying. He was obedient to the Father at the cost of his life. He humbled himself by being obedient and dying. You want to be humble? Obey God? Die to self. You'll be humble. Christ's humility, this is Andrew Murray, Christ's humility is our salvation. Because Christ demonstrated humility, we have salvation. Christ's humility is our salvation, and his salvation is our humility. And if we realize that his salvation is done for us, we'll be humble people. More than the revelation of our sin that humbles us, and listen to me, it certainly does just that. More than once, I've been humbled by my own sin. I've had to confess that to people. It's exposed me, and I've been humbled by that. But more than sin will humble you, the grace of God will humble you. The fact that He would extend forgiveness to sinful man. That He's so full of grace to those that oppose Him is amazing. The grace that God extends us should humble any man. When we realize who God is and see ourselves in light of Him, it is only then that we also realize the grievousness of our sin. It's offense to a holy God and see the great measure of His grace-filled salvation. True humility is condescending out of heaven, giving no regard to Himself, His position, His right, but rather emptying himself of those privileges and becoming like the creatures he created who are now rebelling against his love for them. Only to serve them with his whole life, including persecution and physical torment, ending in a gruesome death on a shameful cross so that prideful men would have an opportunity to repent and be like him in his humility. That's humility. And it was Christ's joy and honor to endure the cross, to deny himself for the sake of others. He had his Father's interest in mind above all else, including his own. True humility not only sets aside your interest for others, as the text suggests in verse 4 of Philippians 2, but puts Christ's interests above all others. It's not just denying your interests or even caring about other people's interests. It's putting Christ's interests first. And he says that in Philippians 2.21 when he's talking about his brother Timothy. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. Paul wanted, one, Paul wanted one kind of man. Somebody who had Christ's interests first. Listen to me. That's exactly what God's called us, called us all to. To have his interests first. Too often we view silence as humility. When in actuality, biblical humility requires us to speak the truth in love to others. True humility demands that we first examine ourselves closely, remove those planks of sin, then be willing to address the sin of other brothers and sisters in Christ. That's real humility. That's hard work. True humility is willing to pay the cost of being viewed as less by anyone in order to love them with the truth. Real humility is bold in Christ. 
It's not this cower down in a corner. That's, that's false humility. Real humility stands on God's Word. Examines themselves with it. Removes those planks. And then addresses other sin. I'm pleading with God to make us a humble people. And I want you to see why. Because there's honor in humility. There's honor in humility. What does our text say? But humility goes before honor. What follows humility? Honor does. You want to see it in Christ's life? He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, or for this reason also, God highly exalted Him and gave Him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It says God exalted Him to the highest place. The man who emptied himself and became obedient to the point of death, who demonstrated true humility, guess where he sits now? In the highest place of honor. There's not a higher place. You can't be exhausted higher than where Christ sits at this moment. He owns the most honorable, exalted place in the universe. That's the reward. That's the reward of humility. Proverbs 22, excuse me, Proverbs 22, verse 4. The reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. Proverbs 15, 33. The fear of the Lord is, the inst- is instruction for wisdom, and before honor comes humility. He repeats it over and over. God rewards the humility of the saints with honor, riches, and life. And when he says life, we're talking eternal. Anyone who walks in Christ-like humility will by nature trust God for his salvation. Die to self and be honored by God. Don't you want to hear those words one day? Well done, my good and faithful servant. Don't you want to walk in honor? Don't you want to honor the Lord? You've got to die to self. You have to die to self. Here's some application. I'll be brief with this. It'll be quick. This would be my encouragement to us today. Dear saints, perhaps there's some among us who are not in Christ. We all should listen carefully. Go to God's Word for your heart to be instructed. Listen, never stop spending time in this book. Never stop spending time in the Scriptures. Obtain knowledge. That's not wrong. Go get knowledge from God's Word. But listen to me. Every time you do, ask God to help it instruct your heart. Let your heart be exposed for what it is. Don't be afraid to have your heart exposed. When God shines the light in, He's going to expose things. There's going to be some darkness in you. There's going to be some sin that needs to be drawn out. Listen to me. Don't be afraid of that. Don't be ashamed of that. Let God expose you. And when He exposes you, you know what you should do? Ask God to expose you more. And guess what? It's going to be difficult. It's not going to be easy. But listen to me. The more light that God shines in your heart, the more root of pride that's, that's dug up, listen to me, the more free your life becomes. The weight is removed. So let your heart be exposed by the Word of God. And when it's exposed, repent. Repent of the pride in your life. Repent. And don't just repent to God Himself, but listen to me. Find trustworthy saints and confess sin to them. Let them know what God is doing in your heart. Be exposed before them so they can walk with you. Bring wisdom alongside you. And as I said earlier in the sermon, continue to deny self. Deny self. Deny self. Deny self. You, you may have heard me say this before. I, I, uh, 
Rick said it several years ago and it just stuck with me and I can't, it's just, it's the phrase that comes to mind all the time now. He was speaking about dying to self and Rick said, in Rick's way, if you know Rick, you know what I'm saying. He said, you have to snipe that old joker every morning. You have to snipe that old joker every morning. What Rick was saying is, every day he knows he has to get up and die to self. The old man has to be done away with. Because guess who's going to be there tomorrow morning when you wake up? The old man, in his pride, wanting to preserve self. You have to kill him. Die to self. And then listen to this last one. Number five on our application. Humble yourself before the Lord. Humble yourself before the Lord. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. He will give you honor. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Listen to me. You will be humbled. You can do it yourself, or God will do it for you. You can be like Christ, or you can be like King Nebuchadnezzar. Guess what? They both got humbled. Christ humbled himself. Nebuchadnezzar was humbled by God. The same is true for us. Humble yourself before the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you can take one verse to instruct us and expose us. Father, I pray for conviction today. Father, I pray conviction for the pride of life. Lord, expose our pride. Every individual in this room, Father, I pray that you would expose their pride, myself included. Expose our pride. Father, grant us repentance when you expose that pride. Grant that repentance to us, Father. Cause us to repent, to lament that. And Father, help us die to ourselves and to humble ourselves before you. Help us, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.